Hello, this is Appendo Books, and you are listening to the first 10 pages. Today we're going to be reading from White Teeth by Zadie Smith. Uh, this book is the winner of the 2000 White Bread First Novel Award. Early in the morning, late in the century, Crickwood Broadway, at 627 hours on 1st of January 1975, Alfred Ultrabald Jones was dressed in a corduroy and sat in a fume-filled Cavalier musketeer state face down on the steering wheel, hoping the judgment would not be too heavy upon him. He lay forward in a prostate cross, jaw slack, arms splayed either side like some fallen angel. Scrunched up in each fist, he held his army service medals left and his marriage license right, for he had decided to take his mistakes with him. A little green light flashed in his eye, signaling a right turn he had resolved never to make. He was resigned to it. He was prepared for it. He had flipped a coin and stood staunchly by its conclusions. This was a decided-upon suicide. In fact, it was a New Year's resolution. But even as his breathing became spasmodic and his lights dimmed, Archie was aware that Crickwood Broadway would seem a strange choice. Strange to the first person to note his slumped figure through the windscreen. Strange to the policeman who would follow the report. To the local journalist called upon to write 50 words. To the next of kin who would read them. Squeezed between the an almighty concrete cinema complex at one end and a giant intersection at the other. Cricklewood was no kind of place. It was not a place a man should come to die. It was a place a man came in order to go to other places via the A41. But Archie Jones didn't want to die in some pleasant, distant woodland or on a cliff fringed with delicate heather. The way Archie saw it, country people should die in the country, and city people should die in the city. Only proper. In death, as he was in life, and all of that. It made sense that Archibald should die on this nasty urban street where he had ended up, living alone at the age of 47, in a one-bedroom flat above a deserted chip shop. He wasn't the type to make elaborate plans. Suicide notes and funeral instructions, he wasn't the type for anything fancy. All he asked for was a bit of silence, you know, a bit of shh, so he could concentrate. He wanted to be perfectly quiet and still, like the inside of an empty confessional box or the moment in the brain between thought and speech. He wanted to do it before the shops opened. Overhead, a gang of the local flying vermin took her from off the, some unseen perch, swooped, and seemed to be zeroing in on Archie's car roof, only to perform, at the last moment, an impressive U-turn, moving as one with the elegance of a curveball and landing on Hussein Ishmael, a celebrated halal butcher. Archie was too far gone to make a big noise about it, but he watched them with a warm internal smile as they deposited their load, streaking white walls purple. He watched them stretch their peering bird heads over the Hussein Ishmael gutter. He watched them, watched the slow and steady draining of blood from the dead things, chickens, cows, sheep, hanging on their hooks like coats around the shop, the unlucky. These pigeons had had an instinct for the unlucky, and so they passed Archie by, for, though he did not know it, and despite the Hoover tube that lay on the passenger seat pumping out from the exhaust pipe into his lungs, Luck was with them that morning. The thinnest covering of luck was on him like fresh dew. 
Whilst he slipped in and out of consciousness, the position of the planets, the music of the spheres, the flap of a tiger's moth, <coughs> diaphanous wings in Central Africa, and a whole bunch of other stuff that makes shit happen and decided it was second chance for time for Archie. Somewhere, somehow, by somebody, it had been decided that he would live. The Hussein Ishmael was owned by Mo Hussein Ishmael, a great ball of a man with hair that rose and fell in a quiff, then a ducktail. Mo believed with pigeons, you have to get to the root of the problem, not the excretions, but the pigeon itself. The shit is not the shit. This was Mo's mantra. The pigeon is the shit. So the morning of Archer's <laughs> almost death began as every morning in the Hussein Ishmael, with Mo resting his huge belly on the windowsill leaning out and swinging a meat cleaver in an attempt to halt the flow of dribbling purple. Get out of it! Get away! You shit-making bastards! Yes! Six! It was cricket, basically, the Englishman's game adapted by the immigrant. And six was the most pigeons you could get at one swipe. Run in! said Mo, calling down to the street, holding the bloodied cleaver in a triumph. You're into that, my boy! Ready? Below him, on the pavement, suit Varen, a massively overweight Hindu boy on misjudged work experience from the school round the corner, looking up like a big, dejected blob under, under Moe's question mark. It was Vernon's job to struggle up the ladder and gather up spliced bits of pigeon into a small, quick-save carrier bag, tie up the bag, and deposit it in the bins at the other end of the street. Come on, Mr. Fatiman, yelled one of Moe's kitchen staff poking Vernon up the arse with a broom as punctuation for each word. Get your fat ganache Hindu backside up there, elephant boy, and bring some of that mass pigeon stuff with you. Mo wiped the sweat off his forehead, snorted, and looked over at Cricklewood, surveying the discarded armchairs and stripes of carpet, outdoor lounges for local drunks, the slot machine emporiums, the greasy spoons, and the minicabs, all covered in shit. One day, so Mo believed, Cricklewood and its residents would have cause to thank him for his daily massacre. One day, no man, woman, or child in the broad would ever again have to mix one part detergent and four parts of vinegar to clean up the crap that falls on the world. The shit is not the shit, he repeated solemnly. The pigeon is the shit. Mo was the only man in the community who truly understood. He was feeling very zen about it, this... Very good will to all men, until he spotted Archibald's car. Ashad! A shitty-looking skinny guy with a handler, handlebar mustache, dressed in four different shades of brown, came out the shop with blood on his palms. Ashad! Mo barely restrained himself, stabbed his finger in the direction of the car. My boy, I'm going to ask you just once. Y yes, Abba? Said Ashad, shifting from foot to foot. What the hell is this? What is this doing here? I got the delivery at 6.30. Got 15 dead bovines coming up here at 6.30. Got to get in the back. That's my job, you see? There's meat coming, so I am perplexed. Mo affected the look of innocent confusion. Because I thought this was clearly marked. Delivery area. He pointed to an aging wooden crate above, which bore the legend, no parking of any vehicle on any days. Well, I don't know about you're my son, Ashad. I employ you not to know. I employ him to not know. He reached out the window and slapped Vernon, who was negotiating the perilous gutter like a tightrope walker, giving him a thorough cosh to the back of his head and almost knocking the boy off his perch. 
I implore you to know things, to compute information, to bring into light the great darkness of the creature's unexplicable universe. Abba? Find out what's going on there and get whatever that. Bo disappeared from the window. A minute later, Ashad returned with an explanation. Abba? Mo's head sprang through the window like a malicious cuckoo from its Swiss clock. He's gassing himself, Abba. What? Ashad shrugged. I shot it through the car window and, and told the guy to move on, and he says, I'm, I'm gassing myself. Leave me alone. Like that. No one gasses himself on my property, Mo snapped as he marched downstairs. We're not licensed. Once in the street, Mo advanced upon Archie's car, pulled out the towels that were sealing the gap in the driver's window, and pushed down five inches with brute, bullish force. Do you hear that, mister? We're not licensed for suicides around here. This place is halal, kosher, understand? If you're going to die around here, my friend, I'm afraid you thirty have to bleed first. Archie dragged his head off the steering wheel, and in the moment between focusing on the sweaty bulk of a brown-skinned Elvis and realizing that life was still his, he had a kind of epiphany. It occurred to him that, for the first time since his birth, life had said yes to Archie Jones. Not simply in, okay, or you might as well carry on since you've started, but a resounding affirmative. Life wanted Archie. She had jealously grabbed him from the jaws of death back to her bosom. Although he was not one of her better specimens, life wanted Archie, and Archie, much to his own surprise, wanted life. Frantically, he wound down both his windows and gasped for oxygen from the very depths of his lungs. In between gulps, he thanked Mo profusely, tears streaming down his cheeks, his hand clinging onto Mo's apron. All right, all right said the butcher, freeing himself from Archie's fingers and brushing himself clean. Move along now, I've got to meet Clumming. I'm in business of bleeding, not counseling. You want laundry state, this is Crookwood Lane. Archie, still choking on thank yous, reversed and pulled out from the curb and turned right. Archie Jones attempted suicide because his wife Ophelia, a violent-eyed Italian with a faint mustache, had recently divorced him. But... He had not spent New Year's Eve morning gagging on a tube of vacuum cleaner because he loved her. It was rather because he had lived with her for so long and had not loved her. Archie's marriage felt like a buying a pair of shoes, taking them home and finding they don't fit. For the sake of appearances, he put up with them. And then, all of a sudden, after 30 years, the shoes picked themselves up and walked out of the house. She left. 30 years. As far as he remembered, just like everybody else, they began well. Spring of 1946, he had stumbled out of the darkness of war and into a Florentine coffee house where he was served by a waitress truly like the son Ophelia Diagicillo, dressed in all yellow, spreading warmth and promise of sex as she passed from a frothy cappuccino. They walked into blinkered as horses. She was not to know that women never stayed as daylight in Archie's life. That somehow in him he didn't like them, he didn't trust them, and he was never able to love them. But he was able to do that only if they wore halos. No one told Archie that lurking in the Diagilo family tree were two hysteric aunts, an uncle who talked to Abergines, and a cousin who wore his clothes back to front. So they got married and returned to England, 
where she realized very quickly her mistake. He drove her very quickly mad, and the halo was packed off to the attic to collect dust with the rest of the bric-a-brac and broken kitchen appliances that Archie promised one day to repair. Amongst that bric-a-brac was a hoover. On Boxing Day morning, six days before he parked outside Moe's Halal Butchers, Archie had returned to the semi-detached in Hendon and searched for that hoover. It was his fourth trip to the attic in so many days, figuring out odds and ends of a marriage to his new flat, and the hoover was amongst the very last items he reclaimed, one of the most broken things, most ugly things, the things that you demand out of sheer bloody-mindedness because you've lost the house. This is what divorce is, taking things you no longer want for people you, you no longer love. Ah, so you again, said the Spanish home help at the door. Santa Maria, Maria Santa or something. Mr. Jones, what now? Kitchen sink, see? Hoover, said Archie grimly. Vacuum. She cut her eyes at him and spat on the doormat, inches from his shoes. Welcome, senor. The place had become a haven for people who hated him. Apart from home help, he had... He had to contend with Ophelia's extended Italian family, her mental health nurse, the women from the council, and of course Ophelia herself, who is to be found in the kernel of the nut house, curled up in a fetal ball on the sofa, making lowing sounds and the bottle of Bailey's. It took him an hour and a quarter just to get through the enemy lines, and for what? A perverse hoover, discarded months earlier because it was determined to perform the opposite of every vacuum's objectives spewing out dust instead of sucking it in. Mr. Jones, why don't you come here when it makes you so unhappy? Be reasonable. What can you want with it? The home help was following up the attic stairs, armed with some kind of cleaning fluid. It's broken. You don't need this, see? She plugged it into the socket and demonstrated the dead switch. Archie took the plug out and silently wound the cord round with the hoover. If it was broken, it was coming with him. All broken things were coming with him. He was going to fix every goddamn broken thing in this house, if, it only, if only to show that he was good for something. You good for nothing, Santa, whoever chased him back down the stairs. Your wife, she's still in her head, and this is all you can do? Archie hugged the hoover to his chest and took it into the crowded living room, where, under several pairs of reproachful eyes, he got his toolbox and started to work on it. Look at him said one of the Italian grandmothers, the more glamorous one with those big scarves and fewer moles. He take everything a piece. He take a mine. He take a blender. He take an old stereo. He take everything except the floorboards. It make the music. The woman from the council, who was even... The woman from the council, even on day, dry days, resembled a long-haired cat soaked to the skin, shook her skinny head in agreement. It's disgusting. You don't have to tell me it's disgusting. And naturally, we're the ones left to sort out the mess. It's Muggins in here who has to. Which was overlapped by the nurse. She can't stay here alone, and she... Now he's buggered off, poor woman. She needs a proper home. She needs... I'm here, Archie felt like saying. I'm here, right here, you know. I'm bloody right here. And this is my blender. But he wasn't one for confrontation, Archie. He listened to them for another 15 minutes, mute as he tested the Hoover suction against pieces of newspaper until he was overcome by the sensation that life was an enormous rucksack, so impossibly heavy that even if it meant losing everything, 
it was infinitely easier to leave all baggage here on the roadside and walk into the blackness. You don't need the blender, Archie boy. You don't need the hoover. The stuff's all dead weight. Just lay down in the rucksack, Arch, and join the happy campers in the sky. Was that wrong? To Archie, ex-wife and ex-wives, relatives in one ear, spluttering vacuum in the other, it just seemed that the end was unavoidably nigh. Nothing personal to the god or whatever. Thank you for listening. That was the first 10 pages of White Teeth by Zadie Smith. Tune in next time.